If you're anything like me, there's probably a number of things you're missing in your life right now. One of those things for me is simply travel. I love to travel and I reminisce. I can remember being in cities around the world where I'm not sure exactly the layout, but I have a map. But even then to find myself disoriented, I'm on a rail car or a bus. And as you look at the stations you're going by, they don't add up and you realize, ugh, I'm headed in the wrong direction. You gotta get off, get on a different transport and go back in the right way so you can get to your destination. In a way, every time we engage with scripture, we give ourselves the opportunity to have a reality check, to see if we're living directionally right in our relationship with God. This can be a really good thing. It's encouraging when the signs of scripture affirm the choices, we, the choices we've made and how we're living our lives. In the same way, it's actually a good thing when scripture calls us up short. See, I may be fooling myself, I may be blind to something that I need to see, or I may be really headed in the wrong direction. I need to turn back, change my trajectory, and get back heading in the right way. Sometimes I think we think of uh, Christianity as something very static, a, a, a moment of prayer or a label that we put on our back. But the essence of Christianity has to do with movement. It's all about God being on mission and him calling us to follow. At Central Heights, we're engaging in the Gospel of Luke, and last week we were introduced to the mission of Jesus as he read it out to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, we see it's empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What Jesus has to bring is good news for the people. It's a mission of compassion and mercy, but that does not mean that it will be well-received. It doesn't necessarily come in the way we might prefer it. It certainly didn't for the Jews. They were favorable towards Jesus until he told them that the mission would extend beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, who might more readily receive what Jesus had to offer than the Jews. Suddenly, favor turns to anger and self-righteousness and prejudice prevail, so much so they want to kill Jesus and throw him off a cliff. Only they didn't, because they can't, because Jesus still had a mission to fulfill. That mission would be accomplished both in Jesus and his followers. There were things that only Jesus could fulfill, like going to the cross, but there were things that he would want to accomplish through those who believe in him. This seems a little crazy to me because I would think that God could do the best job all by himself. Why would he need us? But it is the intention of Jesus to multiply his mission in those who believe in him. At Central Heights, we talk about how people move from seeking to believing to serving, then to multiplying. And this really is a recommissioning of what God intended for his people all along, but failed to fulfill. The words spoken to the father of faith, Abraham, were multiplication words when God said to him that he would be blessed to be a blessing. God is on a mission and he calls people on that mission together with him so that his word can be extended and multiplied. It begins in Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word we will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Gennesaret is also known as the Sea of Galilee. It's about 125 kilometers northeast of Jerusalem, about 25 to 30 kilometers from Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. Jesus is teaching in that region. He's at the lake, beside the lake, and as the fishermen are cleaning their nets, Jesus steps into one of the boats and has it pushed out a bit from the shore. This is a perfect setting to proclaim uh, the, the teaching that Jesus wants to proclaim. Sound carries very well over water. So Jesus teaches, and then after that, he zeroes in on a man named Peter. He's a seasoned fisherman. Jesus is not, but Jesus said to him, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Hmm, this is a moment of decision for Peter. See, they fished all night the right way. You don't fish Sea of Galilee in the heat of the day in broad daylight. And Peter and his company had fished the right way all night and caught nothing. To use a phrase common to us, Jesus is testing the waters here. You see, in our relationship with God, you have these moments when you're pretty clear what God is asking of you, like through reading his word or uh, situations have just confirmed it, the voice of the Holy Spirit, but yeah, it, it seems foolish to you. It doesn't make sense. It's difficult. It's hard. It's going to take effort again. It's okay to wrestle like Peter did here, but we also need to arrive at where Peter arrives at. See, there's a fundamental underlying question as to how we live our lives. You've answered it, though you may not be aware of it. The question is, who or what is going to be the authority of my life? Peter says, Master, we fished all night. Struggle, struggle, but at your word, I'll do it. I'll trust you. I'll suspend judgment. I will act. Peter is with uh, his other fishermen partners, and I'm not sure what they were thinking in the moment. All of them, whether it was cynicism or resignation or was it expectation. I know sometimes when I look back at when I, when I stepped into something that God has asked of me and it seems difficult or hard or doesn't necessarily make sense, I wonder, like, why would I ever doubt God? Because God has always shown himself faithful. So in the, in the new moment of, of my struggling, I wonder, why would it be different this time, Tim? See, I may not particularly understand the why, but like a toddler, it's always rewarding to trust and to act as it is for the fishermen here. They let down their nets and amazing. Jesus reveals himself to Peter in, in, in the world that is so meaningful and significant to Peter. Fish are important to him. It's probably been his livelihood with his father since he was a boy. And now the nets are full of them. The, the boats are filled with abundance. It doesn't work this way, except when you act according to God's word. 
provision, abundance, miracle. Maybe there is a place where God has you right now where he's inviting you to act. What is that for you? Do it. Do it. Because it's in those places that the God we read about becomes the God we experience and know. The God we can testify to. Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God Day by Day, says God does not want you to merely gain intellectual knowledge of truth. He wants you to experience his truth. There are things about Jesus you will learn only as you obey him. Your obedience will then lead to greater revelation and opportunities for service. Peter has probably heard Jesus before. He's most certainly heard about him. But this is revelation. You may think it's strange, Peter's reaction. It's not, Jesus, this is amazing. Let's go into business together. You just tell us where the fish are and we'll take care of the rest. Why the depart from me? For I am a sinful man. That is what you say when you come into the presence of something holy, God. That's what you say when you become aware of your humanness, your your fault, your mixture, your failures. Isaiah was a man who also encountered God in the temple. Uh, Isaiah, who Jesus quotes as he inaugurates his mission, was in the temple one day when he got a vision of the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the very hem of his garment filled the temple. And as he's there, Isaiah Isaiah sees these angelic creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is full of his glory. And the voice of God shakes the foundations of, of the temple and it shakes the life of Isaiah. He becomes undone. For Isaiah, it's woe is me. For Peter, it's depart from me. For I am a sinful man. Revelation, then commission. So it was for Isaiah. God commissions him right after that. And here it is for Peter. Having a revelation of Jesus, Jesus now commissions him, calls him into mission. See, it's so important. Who we believe to be who is calling us makes all the difference in the mission. We read verse 10 again. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. When we see the greatness of Jesus, how infinitely greater he is than we are, then to be invited to, into a relationship with him and to be on mission with him, we see it as such an amazing privilege. Imagine God driving a vehicle up onto your driveway, honking the horn and saying, hop in, let's go. We get to ride with Jesus. We get to be with God on mission. And when when the magnitude of that hits us, we drop everything to go. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. Christian is not a one-time prayer. Christian is not a check mark on a box. It's not a status label. It is to follow, not in subscribing to God's Instagram account, but to literally walk with Jesus to the places where he wants to take you and to be so enthralled with that invitation that we count it as a privilege to leave everything else behind. This is truly transformational. As it was for Peter, so it is to be for us. That our encounter with God changes us. But we should not think that for like Peter, who was called to leave his place and go, that it is only those who do that, like missionaries, who are truly following Jesus. That would miss the point. Later in Luke chapter 8, he tells us a story of a demoniac who is healed by Jesus, who so badly wants to leave his home and go with Jesus. We read, 
The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The point is not that we have to go. The point is that an encounter with Jesus reorientates our whole life. That our relationship with Jesus is not just one hour or a couple of hours on a weekend. I think the pandemic has shown the, the, the inadequacy of all that. The encounter with Jesus is to lead to the place where everything about us is oriented around Jesus. 168 hours in the week. To know and follow Jesus is to allow him to be the, the center of our affections. He's the basis for our goals. So that whether we are called to go as Peter was, or whether we are called to stay as the delivered demoniac was, our life is all about Jesus and his mission. We read an another account in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus invites another person. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our story today and this story are like centuries apart, continents apart, and yet they still have this same theme. We dislike tax collectors. I think you think you have a disdain for tax auditors. The Jews hated people like Levi. Levi was a Jew who was working for the Romans and skimming money off the top as he collected tax. He was seen as a cheat and a traitor and one in his relationship with God who was dirty, unclean they called him. Levi was ostracized. What does Jesus do? Levi, follow me. As Jesus invites Levi, he's showing us that the invite list of God has no limitations. To emphasize that later, Luke is going to give us a story of Jesus where it just illustrates this so powerfully. There's a master who throws a great banquet and the people whom we would think would be invited, the who's who of society, deem the invitation is not important enough. So they decline it. Don't let that be you. We read, but they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Excuses, excuses, excuses. So in the story, the master of the great feast, he has his servants invite those who are the outcasts of society, the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. And further, he says to his servants, go to the highways and the hedges. I want my house to be full. This is a picture of God that God is inviting, inviting everyone into a relationship with him. No matter who you are, what your place in society, what your nationality or race is, no matter what your past is about, God is inviting you. How are you responding to that invitation? Maybe you've never entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's there for you today. Or maybe you find yourself today 
sort of, you know you've been heading in the wrong direction. God is inviting you back into that close relationship with him. Back to verse 28, speaking of Levi, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. There it is again, leaving everything to follow Jesus, paying a price to say yes to Jesus' invitation. In Ephesians, the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul writes the most glorious things about the grace of God, who he is, and what he's done for us. After that, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says these words, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul uses the word calling to describe the totality of our salvation. And our response is to be such that we walk, think direction, movement, following in a way that doesn't treat God's grace as cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is well known for what he taught, but also how he lived out what he taught as he lived under the regime of the Nazis. Eventually, he paid the price of his life for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. He wrote this about grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which with the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. In Luke 14, after the story of the banquet, Jesus says some very challenging words. I want to read them to you. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In light of the greatness of the one who is calling us and the eternal value of the mission that he's invited us into, everything else that we could value matters so much less. Jesus says, including our families and our very lives. This is a challenging part of Christianity. Not because what God is asking of us isn't clear, but because it's difficult in light of my human frailty, in light of my tendency to want to go my own direction, my own way, you can probably relate. I've been a Christian for many years, and as I look back on my life, there have been times when I have paid what to me was a big price, and I've never regretted it. But there are also times, even now, when I struggle with paying what is the price that is necessary to follow Jesus. And sometimes it's just in the little things. I want to do my own way in this, but it never turns out the best. Salvation is completely free. What God has done for us could never be earned or achieved. It is by grace alone. 
But that does not negate the fact that we are to count the cost, that there will be a price to pay in following Jesus. Jesus said it would be so, and so we're to count that cost. That may be different for you than it is for me, but in some places it may be similar. As I think about Central Heights heading into 21 days of prayer, there'll be many who will be paying the same price of going without food for a day or two or longer in order to position themselves to encounter God. But there are ways in which the price that we have to pay is to bear our own cross. It it is particular to who we are. It may be to bear our cross in the area of denial because of an area of temptation or weakness that you have that I don't. Or maybe it may be in an area of investment where God is asking you to invest time and energy according to the skills and giftings that he's put into your life. We are all called to follow, pay the price as we do that. Now this may sound difficult and, and for some people sound really negative, but I want to help us understand it in a different light today. You see, I think intuitively each one of us knows that things that have value cost something. From a commercial perspective, something that's made extremely well, you expect to pay more for it. And when something's extremely valuable, it's going to cost a lot. Think of it from a relational perspective. Mothers and fathers, husbands, spouses, wives, friendships. We understand that to have a good relationship, we need to invest into that. It's going to cost us something, time, energy, attention. So it is that cost is needful and necessary only because something is so very valuable. What do we think of Jesus? What do we think of his mission? You know, any sports championship team, any business really going for it, a church who has a vision, they all understand that there's a price to pay for something when it's extremely valuable. Are we willing to pay for it and be all in? This is what Jesus is calling us to. But I want us to see that it is so worth it. And that this cost is actually a joyful cost. We go back to the story of Levi. And after it says that Levi has followed Jesus, what does he do? He celebrates, we read. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Do you get it? Yes, there's a cost to following Jesus. But it is not morbid. What we gain in Christ is infinitely greater than anything we could ever give up. It's necessary and needful, but it's not a net loss. As we pay the price to follow Jesus, as we get to know him better, as he has more of us, we experience him more. Pay the price and throw a party. We read further again, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The call of God is a joyful invitation, but only to those who recognize their need. Their need for God and who he is and how great the things are that he has for them. Like a physician to someone who is sick, we welcome the instruction of God and we do it. And where we get off track, we repent, we turn back, we get on the right bus, we head in the right direction so that we can follow Jesus every hour of the day, 168 hours of the week. 
God has an invitation for you. He has an invitation for us. What is your next step to follow him?